Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Morning. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. So last week, we looked at um, this series that we are going through for three weeks, uh, the offices or roles of Christ. We looked last week at that of prophet, Jesus as prophet, that is, that He is the mouthpiece of God. He is the divine and final communicator of God's will and desire for His people. He was sent into the midst of His people to dwell with them and to be God's communicator with them. And so this week we are going to look at the second role, and that is of priest. So we, uh, we bought a house and moved this week. So as you would assume, I am extremely prepared this morning. With that said, I would like to pray before we begin, uh, just for us as we look at this great truth, and even just for myself as um, I kind of just step down and remove myself from this, and and we would do what we just sang, and that is adore Christ, and to lift Him up, and to behold His glory, and to see God through Him, and to meet with Him this morning. And so, let's pray to that end. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You, God, that You have brought us here. We thank You that You have given us Your Son, Christ. We thank You that You have given us the ability and the right to serve You through Him, that He has given us what is His and taken what is ours. Help us to never lose sight of that truth. Help us to never see our purpose or our means on this earth as anything other than bringing glory to You. God, may in all things, in everything that we do, may we always be pointing to the glory of God. May we be pursuing Your holiness. May we be pursuing our personal holiness. May we be being made holy as You are holy by the power of Your Spirit and the work of Your Son, Jesus. This morning, God, would You be pleased with our offering of praise and worship to You. And as Reynolds says, as, as feeble, as broken, as sin-ridden, As it is, God, may you be pleased in us seeing Christ alone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So as we look at this role, I I kind of obviously think you have to start considering the idea of the Old Testament law, looking at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, looking at all of the functions of the priests, the operation of the temple, the the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, whatever it is in any given uh, chapter that you want to call it. But I started thinking about this theme of repetition, because the one thing you always find as you're looking at the law of God is repetition, 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 festivals and feasts year after year after year, going into the temple, coming out of the temple, going into the temple and out, slaughtering animals, cleaning up, slaughtering animals. And so I I started thinking that really like repetition in general is kind of a double-edged sword. Like in one sense, in, in any realm that you could consider, it, it brings expertise and, and mastery and, and experience. But then on the other hand, it can actually bring anxiety and hopelessness. 
right? This, this idea of doing something over and over again for an intended purpose, either, either reaching the goal and, and the intention or not, can either make you extremely confident or it can leave you feeling very anxious and hopeless. And so I was thinking like, in particular, like exercise and, and dieting. Like we find ourselves with repetition infatuated. Like it, it consumes us. The thing that we continue to do over and over again becomes all that we can think about. And so in one sense, maybe it's like you're doing really well at the thing, the, the intended outcome, and you're, you're, you're receiving the outcome, you're seeing great benefit, and then it kind of consumes you and it's like a fix, like you've got to do it because you don't want to lose what you've worked so hard to gain. And then on the other side, it's like we just wish it would go away. Like that it would get out of our minds, which that's why I thought of exercise and dieting, like for me personally, because it's like, oh yeah, I'll just go to the gym tomorrow when I'm sulking in a dark room because I didn't go yesterday. Right? We can, we can feel very confident in one sense by doing the same thing over and over again, and, and in the same sense, a, the, a different person can feel very anxious and they can find themselves borderline hopeless thinking, you know what, I, I'm going to continue to do these things and I'm just never going to get what I'm looking for. And so when we bring that home to the Christian life and thinking of this repetition of the law, this repetition of sin and sacrifice, we find ourselves saying that repetition will never do. It simply isn't going to work. This idea of sinning and sacrificing, sinning and sacrificing, it will never bring what we're looking for. And so I think as we look here in Hebrews chapter 9, we're going we're gonna to kind of, here's another really intelligent thing I did. I didn't have a lot of time this week, and so my first thought was, let's preach the entire chapter 9 of Hebrews. And even in my mind, I was like, Tyler, that's really dumb. And we're doing it. <laughs> so what we see is repetition isn't going to work. What we're going to see through the book of Hebrews is what we most need is redemption from sin. We need for sin to linger over us no more. We don't just need to continue to sin and then find a way to give a sacrifice to God. We need it to go away. Look with me at Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10. And so the reason I want to go through the whole chapter of Hebrews, and uh, this is, I, I hope to actually this be the shortest sermon in the history of Crosspoint, but um, the reason I want to go through it like this is I think Hebrews 9 gives us actually a really good paradigm or a model of coming from the idea of Old Testament law and sacrifice and the role of priest in the Old Testament to showing us the excellency and, and, and betterness, this is again indicative of my week, betterness of Christ how He is the greater high priest, how He does what we have always longed for and desired after. Starting in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were this lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. 
having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, that is the, the Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So what I want us to see this morning as we consider Advent, the, the, the coming of Christ, Christ with us, Emmanuel, as we're looking towards Christmas and the expectation of Christ being born what I want us to realize is that Jesus' advent is primarily about the glory of God being displayed through the giving and the sacrifice of the Son. Here's the thing. Discussions about sin are never popular. Discussions about personal sin are taboo but they're extremely important for those of us who call ourselves believers and those of us who don't identify with God. It's not popular in any realm to stand and, and talk about sin and to call out sin, but it is pertinent. So, this morning, what I want us to do is to seriously consider the reality that our sin made necessary the coming of Christ and the death of Christ. What I want us to focus our minds on right now is that our sin, our personal sin, that every individual in this room right now, your sin, your wrongdoing, that made necessary the coming of baby Jesus and the slaughtering of our Jesus like a lamb. I think if we will do that, if we'll honestly assess the nature of our sin, the gravity of our sin, the depth of our sin, then I think what we will actually end up doing this morning is not walking away, lingering on our personal sin, but we will walk away beholding the beauty of God's grace in Christ. If you will honestly confront your sin this morning from Hebrews chapter 9, I think we will walk away seeing the beauty of God's grace in Christ and the freeness of that grace. So the first point I have, I have two points. It's this, the holiness of God and the gravity of our sin. So what we see happening here in, in these first 10 verses, we, we have in 1 through 5 this, this idea of this tent being set up, all of these items inside the tent, and then verses 6 through 10 show us the role of the priest functioning inside of this tent, right? You have the holy place and then the most holy place where God's glory resides. 
And so I think that what these texts do is they set the stage for us understanding the holiness of God and also our sinfulness before a holy God. Right? What we see is that God desires a particular type of worship. Worship of God is not preferential. I think that we especially struggle with this so often. We come into a room to worship God or, or living our life worshiping God, and it's like, well, we have to have this song or that song. We can't have this. We can't have that. But in reality, it goes so much further beyond our preference in worship and in actuality what God desires of our worship. And so you have all of these things in this tent setting Israel apart from the nations, right? It's not that God's like, yeah, I need some lampstands, some smoke, and this is really how I get worshipped. No, it's this is what you're going to do because this is the thing that will set you apart from an idolatrous world who worships gods of all kind. You're going to do it in this manner with specificity, and you will not go astray from this in worshiping me. But then we see the gravity of our sin too with this, this role of priest, right? Sin is not inconsequential to worship of God, right? It wasn't inconsequential here, and it's not inconsequential today. Our sin must be confronted. We must come to a realization that our sin is first and foremost reprehensible to God. He doesn't just want us to live our week as we please and then come into this place and give Him our sacrifice. Ask Him for His forgiveness and then put it on repeat. Right? There is particularity where, where, where the holiness of God is considered, we must consider seriously the gravity of sin. And so we see here, and even for us, that if we are to worship God, we must do so sacrificially. Here and for us, to go before God truly in worship, we must find some sort of appeasement of the wrath of God. That's all right, the word propitiation. The wrath of God, His, His judgment of sin must find satisfaction somewhere if we are to come before Him as sinful people. And so here we have a system of bringing bulls and goats and rams and sheep and slaughtering them for a momentary appeasement of the wrath of God, because in the blood of these things, these animals, God finds His judgment satisfied for a moment. And so they can't just go into the tent and do what they want, right? The wrath of God is a serious consideration in coming to God in worship. It's not like He just sets aside His wrath and judgment because we're well-intended. Right? This morning, if you've come into this room and, and you are in open, unrepentant sin, God is not overlooking it. For me, if I've come here this morning and I'm standing on this stage thinking that I've got sin that God just doesn't know about and I can just kind of keep it in my dark closet, 
God knows it exists and he will hold me accountable to it. And so in his grace, he gives these Israelites this instruction for being able to come to him, to meet with him, to worship him. But they also need the removal of guilt. Right? This is atonement. For just a moment, these Israelites need to not be guilty before God. Right? They need the blood of something else. You remember the, the story of Passover where they put the blood over the door frames? And if, if they did put the blood over the door frames, the angel of the Lord would come over and pass by them because they weren't held accountable for the sins of Pharaoh and Egypt because they were atoned for. By the slaughtering of these sheep and the shedding of this blood, God's wrath passed over them. And so he's saying, listen, if if you're going to worship me like I command you, these are the things you're going to need to do. And by the way, if you will commit to do them, then what I'm telling you is that your shedding of blood, your slaughtering of these animals, that is your confession of guilt. This is your confession that you are not holy as I am holy. And so they say, okay. We know that we're sinners. We know that we are not holy. And we know that you are holy. So we will do this so we can meet with you and so we can worship you. And so they repeat it over and over and over again. Because that's what God requires of them. The the thing is this, though. It kind of almost seems like this is actually the way that we could live our life. Right? It doesn't sound fun, but the question just becomes, well, like, why can't we just like, live how we want and then just come and do sacrifices to the Lord? Right? I don't even like, do those bad of sins. I've not like, actually killed anyone. Right? My sins aren't really that bad. But then we reread, look, look with me at verse 7. But into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. I think the temptation that we often face when we are considering our sin, even when we are considering our sin rightly, is to minimize the gravity of sin in comparison to the holiness of God. Right? We know God is holy. We know that He is glorious. We know that His judgment and His wrath would crush us. But yet, there's still the temptation to say, well, I'm not like that bad of a sinner. Like, my sins aren't that bad. I know people that are doing way worse sins than me. But then you have this idea of unintentional sins. Right? We're not supposed to miss the fact, like as Calvin says, our heart is an idle factory. You don't need to do the bad sins because you will sin without even meaning to sin because that is who you are. And so God sets up this system and says, listen, you're going to sin without sometimes even knowing it. And I want to make a way that you can come before me in worship. But you've got to know and admit and confess who you really are. But sometimes we don't want to admit and confess that. What, what we do is we minimize the gravity of our sin. It's almost like a mechanism 
to like not be at fault. It's like a mechanism, like I don't sin that bad. It's almost to say, well, I mean, is it really my sin that destroyed my relationship with God? Is it really my personal sin that has driven a divide between me and God? And the answer is yes, it is. It is your sin. It is my sin that has divided us, that has, that has placed a chasm between a holy God and an unholy people. But God sees this clearly. Right? This state is not hopeless to God. And so the minimization of our sin as if it's not the thing that's hindering our relationship with God, that, that doesn't need to be a thing. We should be able to confront honestly our sin to see it for what it truly is. Actually, I think we must do that. To see the disgust of our sin, to see the depth of which it goes, to see that your sin, maybe it has different effects here on earth, is no worse than anyone else's sin, though. And that in actuality, confessing our sin and coming to God in a posture of confession is the place we must start if we want to worship Him truthfully. And then we get to verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And so in one sense, we see hope with God giving us this way to, to, to get to Him, right, to worship Him. We just have to repeat it over and over again. And then we actually see, yeah, but this is not going to perfect your conscience. And so, yes, in theory, we could technically give sacrifices of our sin over and over and over and over again, but it's not going to give us the intended, desired result we long for. Right, this repetition only leads to anxiety and hopelessness. What have I done today? Okay, this sin, this sin, this sin. I've got to get to the temple as quickly as I can. What haven't I done today that I've actually done today? What unintentional sin has happened this week? You know what the Holy Spirit, in verse 8 it says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates... The role the Holy Spirit is playing here with this, with this uh, verse 9 saying, listen, it's never going to perfect your conscience. What the Holy Spirit is doing for the reader, what He's doing for Israel is He's saying, listen, I'm actually pointing you to the hopelessness of this system. I want you to see that through this you will never actually be holy. The Holy Spirit wants us to look at this and think, oh no. Because the Holy Spirit wants us to see and the Holy Spirit wants us to feel the desperate need we have of a greater priest than these. 
right? Sin is a big deal when it comes to worship of God. The Holy Spirit makes very clear here, this is going to be hopeless, and if you try to live this way, you will feel hopeless. Because the sacrifice you need is the sacrifice you can never give. He wants us to see the futility, and He wants us to find ourselves saying, where then is hope for a sinner like me? We're supposed to see the futility of going out of these doors and living our life as we please, and then coming one day a week into this room and saying, God, forgive me. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, says this, He who wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. A mistake here is most mischievous. Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. Right, the, the, the confrontation of our sin, seeing our depravity, seeing how corrupt we are in our sin, it's painful, it's difficult, but it is absolutely foundationally necessary in the worship of a holy God. If we are to consider the holiness of God, we must consider the gravity of our sin. There's like a few little head nods, and I guess if I, I'd, be, I'd be nodding too, but it gets really wonderful. So like if you're feeling bad about yourself, I don't feel sorry about that, but it's going to get good here in just a second, so hang on. Right? We're supposed to see the hopelessness of our sin. It's supposed to hurt our soul. Right? If you claim to be a believer, your sin should cause you pain. Right? We should strive after holiness as God is holy. We will fall short every single time, but it's still what we should be striving for. I think it was Paul Washer I heard years ago in college. He was saying the, the process of sanctification is like walking through a swamp. Oftentimes it's two steps forward and one step back. But the idea of attaining holiness, is, is, it's a trajectory. It's not a beeline. It's a slow and oftentimes painful process. But in the process is the greatest joy we will ever find. So here, as we look at these 10 verses, what we necessarily end up seeing is the hopelessness of the repetitive pattern of the Old Testament sacrifices. We're not supposed to see anything else. We should see God's grace there, but we should see that it is hopeless to the end of making us holy. We should necessarily see that right now. You should necessarily see the hopelessness of your trying to satisfy God by the way you live your life. 
as if you can live sacrificially enough that he will find pleasure just in that. We're supposed to see the hopelessness, the futility. So the repetition, no matter how well intended it is, no matter how deeply communion with God is desired, it just won't produce the results God requires of us. If we are to be holy as God is holy, this is not the way. And so we see that our sin is simply too great for our feeble efforts. But it's, it's in this necessary hopelessness, right? In this idea of that our conscience will never be perfected in this state, that the author of Hebrews says this. Look at me with, uh, in Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 22. But when Christ appeared as high priest... It's in the midst of this hopelessness that the author of Hebrews says, but Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I hope you were smiling when we read that. Verse 15, Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the second thing we see here is the holiness of God and the holiness of Christ. So if we can see the holiness of God and confront honestly the gravity of sin, then we get to behold the holiness of God and the holiness of Christ. Right? What what we see happening here is that that Jesus as the great high priest He not only provides the sacrifice required by a holy God, He makes us once for all holy. Right, this, do you you remember in Matthew uh, 27, as Jesus is taking His final breath, and he, He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the moment of His last breath, in, in the tabernacle, 
the, the curtain, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place, at that moment, that last breath, that curtain is torn from top to bottom in two. This high priest, he, he doesn't just come and cover our sin. He doesn't just come and paint over all of the filth. What he does is he opens for us the holy of holies where God himself lives. That we might not approach Him with sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, but that we ourselves forever, once for all, for all eternity, have access and communion with the holiness and glory of God Himself. This is our better high priest. This is our great and final high priest. Right? This is not a repetition of forgiveness of sin. This is not a repetition of blood in payment for sin. It is a once-for-all sacrifice that we might be holy as God is holy. We have in Christ been eternally redeemed, and we are eternally secure. What all of those priests had hoped to do what the great high priest Melchizedek had hoped to do, what Aaron and his sons had hoped to do was to make the people holy. And what they desired, Christ alone could accomplish. And so when we see this hopelessness in in Hebrews 9, the Holy Spirit wants us to see that, and then the Holy Holy Spirit wants us to, to say to ourselves, but Christ. But we see that the old covenant with all of its blood sacrifices, that doesn't go away in the new covenant. Right? There was a lot of language in there of if, if there's a commandment of God, if God requires something of you, then it needs to be ratified with blood. This holy command needs to go forth with blood. If you are to be a person of this command, if you are to live according to this plan, it must be, you must be cleansed by the blood of a sacrifice. But this blood, greater than any other blood, Right, and this was something I was thinking about too. As we're thinking about Advent and baby Jesus, it's like how often do we think we see that baby in the manger and it's like I realize that the, the 30-year-old, however historically old Jesus is, the 30-year-old is the one who, who suffers in the flesh. But it is the blood of the baby that will cover a multitude of sins. And that's why I say when we consider Advent, when we consider the coming of Christ, how often do we look as Christmas being something that sees the necessity of the coming of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus being our sin. And that it's this baby who will pay the price we owe.
And not only will he pay it, not only will his blood cover us and cleanse us, something beautiful happens. Like I said, it's not just a painting and covering up. It's what's known as the great exchange in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He doesn't just cover us with blood. He takes our sin on Himself. Look with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what happens in Christ, our high priest, is our conscience is finally made perfect. Our conscience is made perfect because our heart is made alive. The deep-seated corruption of our sin, the culpability of our sin, the grievous nature of our sin before God, the guilt of that when we are in Christ, is ours no more. What does it mean to have a clear conscience? Well, it doesn't mean that you don't do wrong things, but it does mean that you know that you are not guilty. You see, the the, the greatest reality of God's grace in Christ is that He gives us all that belongs to Jesus and that Jesus takes all all that belong to us. That is the great exchange. Our sin for His righteousness. What does it mean to be holy as God is holy? But Christ. You see, everything that we saw in verses 1 through 10... Those were all external things. All of the blood being thrown on the, on the altar, all of the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. All of that was to wash away the external sins of the people. But in Christ, we have an internal redemption. We have a taking of the corruption from us. We have God finding satisfaction, purifying us through the blood of Jesus, and atoning for our sins. It's an eternal redemption. Right? What I said earlier was that what we most need is for sin to linger over us no more. We need to be redeemed from sin. We don't just need it to like go away into a corner. We need it to be taken and destroyed on our behalf. And in Christ, that happens. This morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, what what, what I'm telling you from Hebrews chapter 9 is that this is an invitation for you to experience that great exchange. It's for you to come in earnest, seeing your sin before a holy God and accepting His work alone accepting the work of Christ on the cross alone and in that moment being given righteousness. I'm telling you, 
that you will never work your way to God. You, you will never come into this place and have enough sorrow of sin for God to finally be pleased with you. Like, oh, he's really sorry this time. She's really sorry this time. You need your sin to go. You need it to not be held to your account. Because you will go from this room, believer or unbeliever, and you will sin. The difference is, to whom has the guilt of that sin been given? I wonder this morning in what ways that we're still grasping after dead works. What, in, in what ways this morning are we, even believers, what, what are we trying to do to find satisfaction in God? What, what are we doing to find Him being pleased with us? I, may, maybe you've come here this morning because you want to win God's affection. Maybe you have come because you think He needs your sacrifice of time. Maybe He needs you to come here and serve Him. Or maybe you've actually stumbled into this room, and maybe you're regretting it at this moment, I don't know, but maybe you've stumbled into this room because you're simply looking to find some sort of answer to your sorrow. Or maybe a little bit more subtly, this, you're, you're here because at some point this week, you've said to God, I promise I will never do this again if you will just take this away. I promise I will never do this sin again if you will just make me stop feeling like this. I'll go to church forever if you'll just give me some good karma. Right? Well, Christians don't say karma. What do we say? Some blessings. <laughs> what a, like, bless me on up, Lord. Like, I don't know what, whatever our Christian lingo is. I don't know. Some Christian somewhere says karma. Stop it. But the reality is, is that any burden that we could come with in Christ, any burden that we could have come with, any burden of our sin, any guilt of our sin, that has already been borne by the shoulders of Christ on the cross. Right? What God is saying is, listen, I don't need this repetition from you. Right? I need, I need consistency and sanctification. I don't need you to come here feeling bad all of the time and walk away feeling really good. I don't need anything that you have to offer me. What I need you to do is always in every moment have faith in Christ alone. Stop coming here and feeling so guilty. Trust in Christ. Do the hard, difficult, dirty work of fighting sin and trust in Christ. Because you will never feel bad enough about your sin to win God's love. You will never feel bad enough about your sin to win His atoning sacrifice. He simply gives it to those who have faith, who in their hopelessness cry out, but Christ. You see, with a clear conscience comes joy, unfettered, true joy. The reason we don't want to be, the reason we can't do the Old Testament is because we will never be joyous people. We will never find satisfaction in God. But knowing that to us there is no condemnation in Christ 
That is a license to give up on all of the feeble attempts and to simply joyfully serve God. Believer, if if you believe in Christ, if He is your Lord and Savior, you need to give up all of your works. And you need to simply find joy in serving Him, knowing that your works will do nothing, and that in Christ, everything is given to you. And there is no condemnation for you there in Christ. J.C. Ryle says this towards the end of his book, Holiness. He says this kind of about resting in the holiness of Christ, finding rest and respite there. Would you be holy? Would you become a new creature? Then you must begin with Christ. You will do just nothing at all and make no progress until you feel your sin and weakness and flee to Him. He is the root and beginning of all holiness. And the way to be holy is to come to Him by faith and be joined to Him. The only way I know to end this sermon is by reading these last verses of Hebrews 9. Look with me in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests enter the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning confessing that it is only you and in you alone that we have hope. We proclaim with the author of Hebrews, but Christ. God, may we give up our feeble attempts at pleasing you. And may we rest in the completed work of Christ. May we find our sanctification there. May we find our holy living and striving after you there. May we begin in no place apart from Christ. Because even everything that we have, God, we know that it is given. Our our faith, our hope, the success, In the Christian life, none of it is apart from you. Each one of us in Christ this morning, we can confess only one thing, and that is, but Christ died for me. I am holy only because He is holy. I am only righteous because He took my unrighteousness and gave me His righteousness. 
Help us to see these things. Help us to find joy and satisfaction and rest here. And I pray that if there is any unbeliever, that this hopelessness, this, this desire to repeat this cycle of sin and sacrifice would, would eat at them until they find themselves being driven to the cross alone. That their knees would become so weak, that they would be so tired of running and running and running and trying to get to you, that they would see that the reality is that if we would just stop and behold Christ, it is there that we would find everything that we are looking for and more. We thank you for your son and your sacrifice of him. We thank you that as he is our great high priest, better than any other. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.